everybody, and welcome to another episode of Ruby Rogues. This week on our panel, we have Dave Kimura. Hey, everyone. Nate Hopkins. Hello, hello. David Richards. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And uh, this week, we're going to talk about how hard is Ruby on Rails to learn. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. I kind of, I suggested this topic. I was actually, I'll admit, I was looking at a keyword search tool. <laughs> to see what people were looking for to, learn, <laughs> to know about Ruby on Rails, right? And uh, this one was close to the top. The other one was deployment, but we just released an episode on deployment. So I'll probably just leave that as an exercise to the, the listener. But anyway, it was really interesting because at first I was like, it's not how do I get started with Rails or how to learn Rails. It's how hard is Ruby on Rails to learn? And I, I think in some ways, we've had conversations in the past on this show with this panel and other panels regarding things that they've added to Rails and how complicated it makes it to learn Rails versus, you know, maybe just understanding the basics and how much those have changed or not changed. But yeah, I'm, I'm kind of curious what, what take you all have on how hard it is to learn Ruby on Rails. I mean, has it changed a lot over the last several years? Are there different expectations of Rails developers these days? Yeah. Yes. To all. <laughs> all right. <laughs> no, you know, it's really evolved. And I think that's really the most applicable word because back in Rails 2, even in the routes file, you had a certain way of determining your routes. Now in Rails 3, or when Rails 3 came, came along, it completely revamped and redid a lot of that part. I think that We've gone through many different design patterns over the years with, you know, fat controllers, skinny models to skinny controllers, fat models to, you know, service objects and stuff like that. So I think really we have to look at it from several different perspectives. One, as a coding habit, you know, how hard has Rails become, you know, either starting out a new application or getting onboarded into an existing one, but then also the architecture, the actual Rails core library has definitely evolved over many years. Before, it was just very simple. You did not have many moving parts. You had your models, you had your views, you had your controllers and your routes and your asset file. There wasn't really much beyond that. So when Rails 4 came along, I think it was Rails 4, you got active job. And that was a huge change. Like now you get this background processing built into Rails or at least a wrapper for your background processor. So you've added a level of complexity. However, I think it's still very easy to learn and easy to manage. You know, that one scope or module alone, as well as the controllers, the views and the models, you know, each one of those aspects are very easy to learn on their own. I think when it's all combined into one large package where it becomes more difficult. In Rails 5, you had the addition of active storage and then also with hints of action text and action text being brought into Rails 6. But then Rails 6 is also bringing in other things like the active mailbox. So, you know, you're adding so much more complexities to the application as a whole, even though each one of these separate modules aren't too difficult to learn. But as a new person, a younger person coming into development or someone just young to the development lifestyle, I think that it's going to be almost overwhelming. It's almost like throwing them in the deep end with a Visual Studio IDE and .NET 
it's like, okay, where do I start first? So I think that the guides that we have out there that are constantly being updated, like the Harnold tutorial, are really key and foundational to onboarding new people to the application. But then we still have the complexities and issues around the design patterns that people choose, whether it's JavaScript only front ends and then Rails API backends, or if they're going to be doing something like uh, microservices and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, it's definitely evolved and with evolution comes complexity. I would agree that it is complex, but (laughs) also having done things wrong a few times, one thing that's nice about the Rails thing is it's going to take you a lot more effort to learn it today than it was, say, a long time ago. But knowing that hard problems are solved in a well-documented, consistent way is nice. Well, that's for core rels and getting things done in core rels. But the other thing I've seen, and that was kind of the last thing Dave was talking about, was um, how you choose to, to deploy a larger rels app, you know, say with microservices or with um, a JavaScript only front end, or you can, the team can create a lot of complexity as well. So rels being used, say, as the back end engine, and then a lot of other things being added to it, you know, it's not trivial to come in and say, all right, here's, here's Rails. Like, yeah, here's Rails times 10 because of what the team's doing. So getting onto a production team should take, well, it should be people that are managing teams ought to, to take a look at that a little bit of what does it take to get somebody new onto our team? What do they actually have to know? And um, at least we have good documentation or a way to onboard a new developer to, to get productive you know, quickly. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I kind of agree and I kind of disagree. I mean, to a certain extent, yeah, you know, it, it is relatively simple to learn in the sense that if you understand model view controller and then, the, I mean, the asset pipeline gets a little bit complicated, but mostly you just put the, the static files in where you want them. You know, you, you do a little bit of config there and you're good. And so I think it's relatively simple to pick up. I mean, once you get into some of the more complicated use cases, you definitely wind up going down the road of, wow, you know, what, what is all this stuff? And, and you, you can, I, I'm not expressing this well, but for the most part, I, I think that's true. Now, it's definitely not as simple as it was, you know, Rails 2, where it was dump all your static assets in the public folder and then, uh, you know, run your app. And other areas of Rails like deployment and things like that that we've talked about on other episodes has gotten a little bit more complicated. But if you're just learning to build apps in Rails, I think the basics are pretty easy to pick up and you can kind of figure out the rest of it as you go. And it's nice having those basics to organize my thinking as well. That, oh, you know, let me think about how to separate concerns a little bit. And then to rely on a tool like Active Record still blows me away at how well it handles things. I've used a lot of ORMs, and some of them consider themselves more powerful than Active Record, but I'll spend 10 times more time custom fitting, checking, getting defaults figured out for these other tools, where Active Record usually works really well exactly the way you'd want it to. And not just with getting data in and out of data tables, but also you know, joining them and doing more complicated business logic with data so much easier because it gives me gives me the rails. It gives me those constraints, which are nice to have. Every time I do it myself, I get it wrong. And then I remember how good Active Record is. <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm curious, Nate, do you have anything to add? Because we've kind of gotten initial takes from everybody. Well, it's funny because I, I just listened to a, some podcast. I don't remember which one that had a couple of the, the Basecamp uh, team members on it. And they were talking about, because they, they, they maintain different versions of Basecamp. Uh, I think they've written it, rewritten it three, maybe four times now. And they said as they go back and you know, need to do maintenance work or something on one of the older ones, like the core structure of the app isn't that different from the new one. So I think you're right in terms of the, the, the fundamental parts of MVC with Rails are still simple and that's easy to get up and running with. It's when you get into kind of these edge cases or need to do more advanced things that we keep adding complexity to the framework. But that, that, I don't know that that takes away the simplicity of getting started quickly with it. 
What was our original question? How hard is it to learn Ruby on Rails? So, yeah, I would make a distinction there in terms of learning it and mastering it, right? It takes a long time to master it. But you can become productive and build business value from scratch with Rails, you know, coming to it as a new framework pretty quickly, I think. I think it's held true to that mission. Yeah. One other thing that I'm going to throw out here, though, is that, and I think Dave alluded to this some, is that it's not just building a web application with Ruby on Rails. The use cases have changed. And so a lot of times we see people using Rails to build API servers, and then they kind of stack a front-end framework on top of it. Or they're, you know, Dave also mentioned microservices, or you have things where, you know, you have to build in an API, or you have to, maybe you're putting in GraphQL or something like that. And so there are different constraints that are being put on the Rails apps as well. And that also affects things in the way that we think about what do I have to learn in order to do Ruby on Rails? Because we're doing things with it now that we weren't doing with it before. And I think regardless of which path someone chooses, I think that the, quote, right path, I know that's very subjective to say, is going to be sticking as close to the Rails core as possible. So by doing that, by sticking to the CRUD and RESTful style, having a controller model view, sticking to that pattern as close as possible, extracting things into a service object where the application doesn't really, and the Rails architecture really doesn't care that you've extracted some complicated logic into a service object or something like that, because you're not changing the actual architecture of the application. You're just kind of adding on to it a bit unlike microservices or doing something like the JavaScript front-end, Rails API back-end. So the closer you stick with it, the easier it's going to be to not only maintain the application, to add new features, but then also to onboard new people to the project because we're all speaking a common language. Now, when you have a large Rails application that you've plugged in a lot of different Rails engines, and all of those engines were developed by different companies or different people, then you start getting into a mess. You know, you might have one engine that's actually written in Sinatra or something like that, and it's going to take a long time to onboard someone. So I think that's one of the downfalls that a lot of us will have getting onto a new project like that is the inconsistencies and not following the law of demeanor or best practices or just having a consistent design for the application. And I think this is especially important what Dave's pointing out because if I were just getting started in Rails today, I'm more likely going to be joining a project that's already midstream. You know, if, I, if I've just done a basic to-do app I'm not going to be asked to build the new system for, for a company. I'm going to be asked to maintain it and, and develop a little bit here and there. And so having a little bit of empathy for the next guy, the next person coming on board that has to learn all of you know, the, the, the organization's choices, is, 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 can be a, it can be overwhelming. But yeah. yeah. To Dave's point as well, there's a, it's kind of interesting to note the larger, the larger Rails apps that we know about, like Shopify, GitHub, Basecamp, they all, to my knowledge, stick pretty closely to the the Rails way of, of doing things. Yeah, and I'm a huge fan of the GitLab project as far as being an end user. However, it is open source, and I've taken a dive into the open source code, and it's confusing. You know, it looks like there's been a lot of hands in the pot. Their user model is well over a thousand lines. I mean, it's almost impossible to bring someone in when you have a project that large that doesn't seem to be well-organized. There's a lot of abstraction where you just, it's not clear where things are defined. You know, and again, I love GitLab and, you know, the product itself and their offerings, but from a code base, it would scare me to be brought onto that team. Yeah, I actually know somebody that uh, joined their team this year, and that's his experience. Is it's been very frustrating to to jump in, have to do things that there's a lot a lot of moving parts. And I'm not saying it's not going to work out, and there's probably really good reasons for every one of them. 
but it's difficult to do. Yeah, but is that Rails or is that the way that they have their app architected? Oh, that's their their architecture. That's the common experience, I think, is that if you go into 90% of the, the development houses around, you've got to learn their architecture. So yeah. differentiating between how hard is it to learn Rails versus how hard is it to work on a project that's maybe abused Rails. That's going to be a, a something to, to, to be aware of. I like the way you put that, that, that has abused Rails. And in some ways, it makes it easy to do, right? It sets you up so that you can go down some of those roads. And in other ways, it saves you from a lot of other issues that you would run into if, it were, if the framework itself were architected differently. So yeah. there, there are trade-offs there, but it's, it's interesting to think about. And yeah, I mean, ultimately, what does it mean to actually learn Rails, right? To, to know it. And yeah, theoretically, you have to know it well enough to get a job, right? And to do the job. And so if we're talking about it in that sense, then yeah, you need to know it well enough to begin to understand what a company is doing with it. Yeah. yeah. I was just going to share a quick horror story. Uh, this is Rails 1.9 or so back in the days of Rails 2 something where they had built this monolith. That they thought it was at the time the largest Rails app in the world. It was huge. And um, it ran all these things, but they had attached so many abstractions and crazy things that to just change a view could take an afternoon. You know, if I just wanted to change a single form with a very simple change, it was basically um, the database was keeping track of a huge amount of, of information and being able to, to test that and to run that and understand what was happening. So that was a horror story. And they had good reasons for everything they did. And they could do things that nobody thought anybody could do with Rails, but getting on board was not fun. Yeah. I think that learning a Rails architecture, it's kind of like driving a car. You know, I have a Honda Civic right now. But I can hop into my wife's Honda Odyssey, same manufacturer, but different model. Or I can jump into a Ford Escort and I would be able to turn the key or push the button and start driving immediately, you know, regardless of who made it or how it was made, because there's a common base knowledge with that uh, vehicle, with all vehicles. But I think that things get, you know, more complicated where if you had one manufacturer that for whatever good reason, they switch the brake pedal and the gas pedal, the throttle. Well, that's going to really cause problems for someone getting into that car with a different expectation of how a car should normally perform. So I think that that's how I kind of feel about a lot of people abusing technologies. Like you said, David, everything must be a microservice. Sure, they think they have a good reason, but ultimately it's not a good reason because most of the people that will be developing that application, it's going to make them stumble and that's going to lead to further defects or bugs being created, unknown things coming up several months later and who knows what kind of damage you're doing. So I would like to argue that no matter what your good reason is, it's probably not that good of a reason to deviate from the core architecture. Plus, you've got this thing. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm sure there's a name for it. But to use your, your car metaphor, I, I drive a 20-year-old Honda Accord. And the transmission, like most Honda Accords, it, it can kick a little bit from first to second. And it's got a bit of a thump. It's probably got a problem with the CV joint. Well, I've learned to ignore those things. Like, I know that it's okay. It's an old beater that's given me 250,000 miles. I'm grateful for that car, but I'm not maintaining it well, or I'm not taking action when it's time to change something or handle something. If the tires are out or the oil needs to be handled, I handle that, but I'm not handling the rest. And so uh, for a Rails app, it's kind of common to, oh yeah, that's, that's the way it is. Instead of sitting down and fixing it. <laughs> You know, taking care of the annoying things, the tests that run long, a little too long, the, the, the piece of code that was written in over a weekend that never got its documentation, the, the, the weird uh, entity relationships that maybe could, could grow up a little bit, you know, that now that we understand the business problem better. Um, so these unmaintained things are, are one way that people just deviate from, from what's good practice. I think that it's also important that no matter what you do, 
design the database correctly the first go around. If you can get that part right, everything else can be refactored. But it's going to be a lot harder to refactor the database and change things around, especially if you're talking about tens of millions of rows in the table or even several thousand. You know, that's going to take a specific and direct directed effort to alter down the road. So no matter what you do, really think about your relationships and how the database really should be structured. If you find yourself having a bunch of nil columns in a table, then chances are you don't need all those columns in that actual table, but it can be a separate table or something like that that's then referenced into your user table or whatever. Yeah, and then if you don't get it right, fix it sooner than later. <laughs> yeah. When you do discover it's time to, to adjust those things because you pile on you pile on um, a lot of technology onto it that relies on that. So, And I think that a lot of these habits that we have, that we see introduced, are really coming from two different places. They're coming from some CEO or CTO who read an article about how cool microservices were, and if you're not using them, then you're lame, so you have to use them, otherwise you're not cool. So he then enforced it down onto his team, and then they had to deal with that aftermath. Or you have a developer who came from another company who did not know what it was like to manage a application long-term. They just worked on a lot of projects really quick and they just did whatever the client wanted without any kind of thought or direction. And in those situations, they then go work for another company who is managing a application long-term. And then you find yourself introducing these bad practices, I like to call them, or bad decisions into a application that's going to be maintained for a long time. And so you have like two different directions coming. And I just like to set the record straight. Like if you stick to the Rails core, updating the Rails core or updating your application to a newer version of Rails is going to be easier. It's going to be a lot easier. And if you bring on new developers, it's going to be easier to bring them on board. They're going to be familiar with the MVC structure. They're going to understand like, oh, okay, you're extracting complex logic over into this this service objects folder. Or you have all your presenter logic extracted out of models and it's in this presenter decorators folder. You know, I think those kind of abstractions to keep the code simplified along with using proper namespacing of controllers and models is going to be really important to for the life of a project. So I have a question. We're talking about Rails core, not too hard to learn. It is more complicated than it used to be. Then we talk about how, yeah, but when you get into a job, it can be a whole different thing if you're not careful. So my question for you guys is, what would you tell somebody that's getting ready for their first Rails um, interview? What, what do they need to know to be ready for their first Rails interview? That's kind of a tough question. Yeah. Because, I mean, everyone's approach with Rails, like we've been talking about, is different, right? A lot of companies don't follow the golden path. And preparing for that interview probably is going to look a lot different than going into a shop that's that's kind of following the Rails way a, a bit more closely, right? So if they just came out of a boot camp or something like that, it's really going to depend probably on their their knowledge of Ruby, uh, if they're going to one of these, uh, you know, kind of a special Snowflake custom solution shops that have bolted on all this extra functionality or, or you know, kind of a different, added their own architecture on top of Rails or into Rails, um, starting to abuse, you know, the patterns that are already laid down there versus somebody going into a, a more standard, you know, Rails setup. They're, they're going to feel a lot more comfortable there. So, I don't know, I'd say maybe to prepare would be to give them some questions that would help them tease out what, what type of company it, company it is in the first place. If they can do that at the outset of the interview, then maybe maybe they can kind of you know, tailor the their answers uh, to fit what they know is going to be coming. It's funny that you mentioned that because uh, I'm on the second pass of my uh, Get a Coder Job book, which I'm going to rename. It's going to be something, something, dream job programmer or something. But anyway, um, yeah, that's what I tell people to do is go and look at the company that you want to work for and then figure out what they're doing, right? And then go learn those skills. And if you're at least conversant in most of those, you have a much better shot of getting the job. 
uh, yeah, the golden path is essentially, you know, Postgres or MySQL and Ruby on Rails and, you know, the front end framework or stimulus or something like that. You know, so so you have kind of those things going for you. Understanding Webpacker probably wouldn't hurt you. But yeah, for the most part, you know, you have kind of these generic tools. But then, I mean, they may be using a different framework. They may be using an older framework on the front end. They may be using Mongoid or something on the back end, you know, for MongoDB. And so there are a lot of different ways that people solve things. You know, maybe they have a, a, a job system that they've got hooked up to it that's different from something that's, you know, the standard sidekick or rescue or something like that. I don't know. I mean, understanding some of the principles behind some of these things, like having jobs and like having a database and, and things like that are, are definitely helpful. And you can probably pick up a lot of the rest. But yeah, you may wind up at a place that does things totally different from what you're looking at. You know, maybe they use a different caching scheme or something like that as well. Yeah, and just to give uh, another example of how deviating from the golden standard, if you will, has come back and really bitten a developer, I worked on a project where we were using Bootstrap 3. And Bootstrap 3, if you don't know, it's a CSS framework that gives you a grid system of 12 columns. Well, for whatever ungodly reason, some idiot UX UI person decided that 12 columns is not friendly. We need 16 columns. So we developed the entire application with 16 columns. And it's a hundred different views, hundred different controllers. You know, it's a decent sized application, a lot of ever put into it. And then six months later, they came back and like, oh yeah, no, we don't like the 16 columns. We need 12 so the application is still using 16 columns because the refactor effort to go in there because we deviated from the standard 12 columns is so immense. Now we're basically blocked from being able to use newer Bootstrap versions. So it's still in Bootstrap 3 because we would have to do a lot of refactoring anyways to move to Bootstrap 4 and deal with the 16 column nightmare. So even though it was a great idea at the time, you know, this is the right direction that we need to go. Ultimately, in the long run, deviating from the standard was a completely dumb idea. So how do you, how do you balance that with the you know, developers? We're all tinkerers. We want to create. We want to feel like special snowflakes. We want to think that our solutions are, and our problems are unique. How do you square that need from a developer to, to living within the constraints that are kind of put down before them or you know, the rails, if you, as it were? You hit, you hit them over the head with the reality stick. Their problem is not that unique, that it's been done in one fashion or another before. You know, I understand people wanting to have importance in their job and meaning in their product. But I mean, really, uh, I've worked on projects from birth to, you know, it's death. And I had no emotional attachments to the project. I had emotional attachments to what I've learned from that project. You know, that's where I brought in my value. So I think people are focusing on the wrong things a lot of times. You know, they want their lines of code to change the world or have a huge impact. If you spouse with kindness and if you love your kids, then you're changing the world. You're not going to do that with a .NET job where you're banging your head against the monitor all day long. You're not going to come home happy. For me, I have two answers to your question. One of them is I can uh, restrict how, <laughs> how bad I can make it. So I could build a, a microservice or a service object or something on the side. And if it's good and it has a long life, then it can grow. But I don't assume that the core gets to change at all. So if I'm trying to solve a problem and I do it my way and I think it through and it looks good, I still like it in six months, then yeah, it could probably live. The other thing I, I, I can do better is learning to talk to people, to collaborate differently. It's not just being willing to talk and listen, but to also hear the, you know, if Dave Kamara was in the room, would he say, guys, you're not special? <laughs> you know, can I see the direction we're going? Are we creating a group thing here where we're convincing ourselves that we're special? We're going to do everything different. So how's my communication? And then how, how well can I see if we're 
if we're actually collaborating in, a, in an interesting way. But but if it's got a, a, I don't know, if there's a way to tie it up and keep it limited and see if it works, then great. <laughs> yeah. I have a limited risk. Let's see how much I can get from that risk. And I think that's where it's at, is the limited risk, not to alter the architecture, but to complement the architecture with these additions. When you start altering it, that's when problems are going to start coming in. Just by complementing, you're doing like you said, you have an extracted piece of code. You know, it could even be like a Go or C extension that you're adding into your application. That's minimally invasive if you go to refactor that bit of code or go back to the Ruby language instead of doing a different extension. That's not hard to do because it's very isolated. It is interesting how, you know, an older project will have these isolated experiments and new people won't touch certain isolated areas, either because there's nothing to do there or they're too scary to, to consider and, and that, that piece is going to need a rewrite. But, but paying attention when I see those um, might help me you know, understand the, the complexity I'm introducing if I'm, if I'm doing it again. No, I'm, I'm all for living inside of the, the Rails way. Uh, I've found the most success doing that personally. And I've, I've also found that there's plenty of opportunity to you know, be creative within those constraints. Having said that, you know, with this line of thinking, Rails itself would never have come to be. You know, is it just a watershed moment where we find like a new way, a better approach, that sort of thing? I mean, that's what we're experimenting with now, like the industry is experimenting with. Microservices, you know, function as a service. Um, you know, these, these front-end frameworks, all of that, everybody's kind of tinkering and experimenting, looking for a better way. But, like, I don't think we've landed on it yet because every time I've gone down one of those paths, it's been incredibly painful. One thing I think that's happened is that Rails, the, the Rails core team took it full circle. They had ideas and they finished the delivery, got it tested, listened, documented it well, made sure they could build production apps with it, so many ideas that are good ideas that I discover in the wild that are maybe 10 years old, five years old, that have been around. And the person that developed them, they consider the project finished when the code was done. But to get another person to use it and to actually build a community around it. I mean, there was so much more done around the Rails community. I think that's why it's not necessarily sacrosanct, you know, meaning don't touch it, it can't be adjusted, but more, hey, this is, this is mature work. This is where people actually train people and they actually answer questions and they actually adjust if it has to be adjusted or they actually use some hard-nosed thinking about what's pragmatic here. And if I'm willing to experiment and then take it full circle, it's probably, it could be the next big thing. I don't believe that we've had all of our best thoughts yet. I just also don't believe that most people don't like to finish their thoughts. <laughs> You know, I picked up a piece of, uh, I won't say which, which tool, but it was a different language, a different tool doing database work. And it's great. It left me doing 80% of the job instead of 20% of the job. They, you know, they, they just didn't come full circle and all the documentation that could have been there that explains all the use cases of how to solve normal things that everybody sees every day just didn't exist. And they've had a decade to do it. And uh, so it might be a better tool under the, under the hood, but um, it's a lot of work to pick up something like that and, and, and try to use it if, if people kind of abandon it too early. This episode is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume. You spend hours and hours on the phone screens and take-home projects. And that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them. And if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. TripleByte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs. And this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com slash rogues. That's triplebyte.com, byte as in eight bits. 
As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through Triple Byte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. Yeah, I also like that they, the, I mean, the Rails team does come around and seem to solve, you know, the common issues that, that people tend to have. I mean, that's where we got active job and, um, you know, a lot of the other, you know, active this, active that, active ca- action cables, another one, you know, where people were looking for web sockets. And so they, they figured that out. And yeah, it's nice that they build that in. Sometimes I wonder, though, if people feel like they have to learn those things in order to build an app, where in reality, you know, they're, they're in a lot of ways nice to haves until you have a use case that really requires them. Yeah, if I was going to teach somebody how to, to get started with Rails, I would say, look, understand that you've got a user and have empathy for the user, build views that get them something that they can get done understand the controller, the model, the database, know that core well, and then understand the big picture of where the other things fit so that you can ask the questions of why are you doing it this way or how do you get this one done? And then if you can see the big, big picture and explain it on a single piece of paper, maybe a drawing, then you're going to be all right because you're going to focus on small things when you actually go to work. But yeah, I think you're right. You don't necessarily have to know all those other things to get started. Yeah. And, you know, uh, back to another car analogy. Many, many years ago, 15 plus years ago, I was trying to show someone how to drive a manual transmission vehicle. And they had never driven one before. They could barely drive an automatic as it is. So trying to teach them to drive a manual was very difficult. But what I started to do was I started to remove the complexities of the car. So you had no brakes, you had no throttle. All you had that you were allowed to use was your clutch. So you put in your clutch, you put it into gear, you ease off the clutch, the car will start moving. Once you get going a certain speed, push in the clutch again, put it into your second gear, just bring it right down and then slowly ease off the clutch. You do that multiple times, without even having to worry about the brake or the throttle, then you're going to get the feel of this extra part that you were never familiar with before. Then you can add in, okay, now let's stop the car so we don't hit something. And then let's add in the throttle so we can actually get going a bit faster. So I really like y'all's point about that, where if you are trying to show someone how to use rails to begin with, completely forget about active job, action cable, and all those things because you don't need them. You don't need them to build a good application. You know, I recently just built a a new, very interactive application that is not using action cable and it barely uses active job, you know, at all. So I think that in a lot of cases, those are tools that are available to you to accomplish something specific, but it's not required. Yeah, you could say that a significant portion of the Rails framework is is Yagni, right? You ain't going to need it um, until you do, and then it's there for you, right? So yeah, I think from, from a learning perspective, focusing on the fundamentals, and Dave actually brought up a great point where there are some assumptions baked into being good at Rails, and it starts with your data model. Like you really need to understand relational data modeling. If you can get that right, almost everything else falls into place or it gets a lot easier, right? Yeah, that's true because a lot of the um, active model, active record stuff is built around that stuff. And then a lot of the restful stuff is built on top of that. So yeah. Have any of you mentored anybody in learning Rails lately? I'm just curious if, you know, anyone's been close to the situation. Um. My current mentee is learning data work. So we're in Python land and machine learning land. Um, so I haven't done that lately, but it's, I know, right? <laughs> but it's interesting because um, I've probably mentored dozens of people learning Rails. Um, that was my thing. Uh, every night, three, three to five nights a week, uh, I'd spend hours you know, working with new Rails learners for oh, a decade, at least five, seven years. And what's interesting with this new one is that it's the same thing. What's the big picture? What's it going to take to get their fingers on a keyboard and doing something? As long as they can see the big picture and they're doing something, they're going to have questions. They're going to make progress. It's going to feel frustrating, but they're getting things done. 
That's been always the key. In fact, there's a whole book written about that. A uh, Harvard uh, professor wrote about that. I'll, I think it was my pick from six months ago for the show. <laughs> I'll look it up again. Uh, it's a good book. It's been a while though since I've opened it, but that that works for for learning Rails. Get your hands on a keyboard and do something. That's so much better than learning about something. It's like learning baseball. Put a bat in your hand and swing for the ball. Learn about the physics <laughs> and the different pitchers' grips later. You know that stuff will come if you really get good. But just swing for the ball and see if you can ever connect. But yeah, do that with Rails. Get something up. That's how I learned it as well. Is um, I was going through some things and I was rewriting old projects, and then my um, uh, graphics card went out. So I had a well, I, I had to go to Terminal and Vim and just build models. And I built a thousand models. Just got really, really, really good at models. <laughs> and I didn't learn about it because I didn't have internet. And I didn't have graphics. I didn't have views. <laughs> <laughs> but I got things done and it was enough. It worked. That explains a certain level of brain damage. <laughs> <laughs> There's more brain damage than you can see. <laughs> uh, I can get away with that. I've known David for years. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I totally agree. I had an interesting conversation with uh, a friend of mine, uh, Joe Eames. He recently purchased Thinkster, Thinkster.io. And he you know, he's doing a, a different approach to learning and he talks, he talks about it. You can go check it out on my JavaScript story or my Angular story. But yeah, it was just fascinating because he basically dove in and said, what we're doing is instead of having a video course where you just walk through it, you're actually going to get the video and it'll explain the principle to you. And then your next step is actually to go and build, you know, go build the thing. And I thought that was really, really fascinating. Just you know, yeah, that approach, because that's how I learned too. In fact, I have a tendency to buy courses, watch the first hour, and then go build stuff, right? And, and, I, and I never watch the rest of it, because I go bang my head against the wall until I figure it out, because I get bored watching the video, and I can't recall any of it afterward anyway. We all use our brains for the wrong things, you know? Uh, I think so, or I have. You know, we try to remember everything. Our brain's not very good at that. We can't remember that much. Uh, what we can do is figure things out, problem solves, pattern match, get creative. There's a lot we can do really, really well. But trying to remember things, try to stick an hour's worth of information in my head and then use it a month later. My goodness, there's a thousand better ways to get that done. You know, go do it. Get muscle memory, you know, um, have something to show for, for the effort. That's so much more effective, I think. You know, one thing that I really like about Ruby and, you know, also Rails is that the more complicated something seems like it's becoming, the more certain you are that you're going down the wrong path. Whereas in other languages, the more complicated that something is becoming, the closer you are to being finished. So I really like, you know, and I think it's true in a lot of cases that if something is very difficult in Rails or Ruby that you're probably adding some level of ab abstraction that does not need to be there. Yeah, that's true, generally true. Yeah, if you're fighting the framework or you find yourself in that position, then you probably need to pause and really think about what it is you're trying to get done and how you're going about it, right? That's, that's a clear sign to me that I'm like, you know, kind of off off out in left field and doing something that I shouldn't be, right, in terms of my solution. I'm really curious, Dave, in terms of your mentoring both days, if you're, but David Richards especially, uh, your mentoring tactics. Like since you did that for so long, like what was your technique? What were, how did you go about uh, working with the people you were mentoring? Uh, we always create video chat if we can. And that gives me a chance to be empathetic. I'm looking at their face and I can see when they're upset or confused or glassy-eyed. So empathy is a big part of that. I, I try to keep a session down to an hour where they're asking questions. Um, and I try to keep 10 to 15 minutes of that. I, I actually record what we did where I demonstrate something too fast for them. So towards the end of the, the episode I'll, or the, the experience, um, I'll... I'll show them how to do something kind of quick and record it on video. 
because then they're going to go see if they can do it. We've been talking up to it, teeing it up, leading, it, leading into it. And then, all right, so here it is, go do it. And I go a little bit fast, and then they're going to come back and ask questions the next session. And they're going to have done it or not. And um, that gives me feedback because it's only a 10, 15-minute clip that they're going to have done. And I put it, I put my stuff on Dropbox. So, and then I get a notification if they've read, if they've opened it and then they can put their note, their notes in line with the video, ask questions in line with the video. So I actually know if it's working <laughs> and I know whether or not they're getting it done. And then I'll tell them, I'll, I'll usually try to give them a big picture all the time. They always just, Hey, remember we're doing NBC here. This is the model thing. So I'm always grounding them on big picture because it's easy for them to just get busy and then realize, okay, I'm lost. And then I, I keep it short. The, the mentoring is till they get their job. So I stay on with them until they're, they're actually using it. Their first employer is going to take over from there. I mean, I'm always happy. I'm friends still. We're happy to talk. It's always just been informal. It's never been a paid thing at all. It's always just been for fun. So yeah, we're still friends, but we're um, the new employer is going to take over what they want, you know, and what they've got to do and what their problems are. So I stay out of the way at that point. But those those things seem to have worked over the years. All those things have worked really well. Other things I've tried that have failed uh, when I got too uh, pedag- is it pedagogical, pedagogical. When I try to just explain the theory too long, that never works. <laughs> when I try to show off, that never works. When I uh, try to do more than one lesson in a in a session, that never works. You know, like I try to, okay, I want you to pick up these two or three things. Like, no, no, let's just have always one thing and then practice it. The other thing too is they're going to Google and they're going to figure it out the way developers do anyway. And so if I can get them started and they can start finding their own answers, that's really the bridge we're looking for. The other thing, I, I always refer to Andy Hunt, uh, his book, The Pragmatic Thinking and Learning. And I do the Dreyfus model every time. So you're, you're a, a novice, an advanced beginner, a um, competent person, um, you're proficient, and then you're expert. And then I've, I always talk about that. You're looking for that gap between an advanced beginner that's trying a recipe out and changing it a little bit and somebody that can actually build something for a living. That's the gap that you need a mentor for because it's a big gap. And so I try to get them as quick as I can right up into that chasm and then tell them you're going to be scared, go, (laughs) but I'm here and then get them practicing it. And then I tell them that proficient comes when you can see your errors while you're making them. So they're not expecting too much of themselves. Oh, I got it done. I made a few errors. I had to pull out you know, my mentor for a minute to go figure out what I did wrong, but I basically did it. So I I, I keep them really focused on that one gap only, um, that they know that they're facing fears. There's an emotional component to thinking that they're realizing that, oh, I'm afraid, I'm overwhelmed, frustrated, good. Let's go through that gap together. Yeah, and I'll keep mine short and simple. For mentoring someone new to programming and Ruby on Rails, I won't even start until they have at least gone through the Ruby on Rails tutorial from Mike Cardle and or the Build and Learn Ruby on Rails 5 from Daniel Kehoe. I think those two books, they're free resources that you can go online and read. And they step you through a lot of the basics. And I think it's those foundational basic knowledges. You don't need to have a one-on-one person, you know, showing you those but they can instead just read through those, try to get through it. And then you can have weekly sessions where you say, so what questions do you have for me today? You know, going over, you know, the different chapters in that book. And I think that's going to be self, you know, very self-serving in many ways because it's going to teach that person to, you know, try to research their own answers or how to find out answers to their questions. But then it's also going to, be a lot more hands-on for them to learn the material. And once you get past the basics, you know, I like coming in and showing more application-specific things like on the Drifter Ruby uh, screencast that I do, like, here's how you do one thing. Here is how I would approach that one thing, you know, and then you can do some overall topical things on like, 
if you want to have then weekly or biweekly sessions on different kind of topics like background jobs or uh, web sockets and stuff like that, then you are building them up over time. But they come to you starting out with that foundational knowledge. You can already have them pass that initial that initial technical aptitude, and they're they're in the chasm, right? They're in the gap where you're you're trying to teach them how to how to think and solve the particular problem in front of them. Well, the other thing that I see with Dave's approach is that if they are driven enough to go and actually go through the Hartle tutorial or the Kehoe tutorial on their own, then they're going to take seriously my time and my effort that I'm putting in to get them, you know, up to speed. And even if I'm getting paid, I I hate wasting my time. And so that's a big deal for me. Yeah, it's interesting to keep people focused on what they can do. So if they're learning RELS, there's a reason. You know, they want a job, sure, but they want to figure out how to do things. And um, and that's really nice to just keep that in mind. You know, look, you're learning RELS because you want to build these apps. You had this app you had in mind you wanted to build anyway. Let's get you started on that. Let's keep you moving. There's an outcome. And, you know, yeah, jobs are nice. Sometimes it's hard to, to get that motivation out of a job because sometimes it's so esoteric or it's such a big organization. It's just not that easy to see the big picture. So keeping somebody uh, focused on what they're personally gaining, what they're personally learning, what they're able to do, and actually take a little bit of celebration. Hey, you did something hard. You know, we're always surrounded by smart people that do things that, that will roll up their sleeves and get some things done. And um, it's, it's kind of easy to forget that, yeah, that's not a normal trait. Most people on this planet aren't actually that way. They don't go into the, okay, I got to go learn for a thousand hours something I want to do on my own and then do it again in a few years and do it again and again and pick up languages and things. I mean, that's not normal. So acknowledging when people do well is, is valuable. Yeah, definitely. One of the, one of the techniques that I found really useful and you'd kind of already alluded to it, both of you have, I was more in a professional setting with mentoring and and kind of leveling up a junior to mid-level team and bringing them into the senior realm. I experienced that firsthand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My first programming job, Nate was my mentor. So, yeah. Nice. But that was a long time ago, and Rails has changed since then. So, he, he yeah. wasn't going to mention you by name and how dumb you were, but let him finish his story. <laughs> <laughs> now that we know. <laughs> yeah. There was this guy who was really slow. <laughs> oh, call him <laughs> <D> for short. <laughs> No, one of the most effective things that I found is is presenting the problem, painting the big picture, presenting the problem, and then forcing the team members to, you know, the, the mentees to propose solutions. Like, how could we accomplish this? We need to, we need to do, you know, X, Y, and Z. How would you go about uh, crafting a solution? And then brainstorming with them and letting them bring ideas to the table, even if they're wrong, right? And being very open and and uh, accepting of anything that they bring to the table and then kind of frame that back into the context of Rails and say, okay, well, the Rails way might be like this, or we could maybe break away from Rails and do it this way. And then we would prototype a solution together just on the monitor to, uh, you know, a pair programming session and um, so that they could see that it was doable. Like we could accomplish the thing that they had proposed maybe with some input of kind of modifying the solution a bit to fit more within the constraints of Rails. And then just deleting all of that code, even though it was like a functional feature for the app or whatever we were building, deleting it and then sending them off to go recreate it, hopefully with enhancements and improvements, right? That's fascinating because a junior programmer typically is junior because they are afraid to act. You know, it really isn't how many years of experience they have, but are they willing to, to get give things a go? And so having <laughs> deleting it, <laughs> now you go, <laughs> you've got this, puts them out of junior role immediately. That's brilliant. Yeah, it worked it worked really well. And and most of the people that I've done that with have remained close friends uh, to me. Yeah. You know, another thing I do, I, just remembering, is I, I'm very open with people when I get it wrong or when I'm frustrated or I can't see it. Somehow, the years of experience, people think I've got it all. Like, no, I don't. I get tired. I get worn out. I can't see it. 
when I at stand up this morning, I tell him, yeah, yesterday I left the office early, frustrated, having tried everything and it all went wrong. And then as soon as I got home, I, I saw what it was. I fixed it and we're good to go again. But being open with people that being senior doesn't mean I know it all. It just means that I'm confident working through the problems. You know, I know that there is an end to this, this problem. So I keep going until I find it. Um, yeah, I that think that's very important, right? To, to convey that at the beginning. Like we, we've been presented, you know, by the business with this challenge of, of providing this feature or adding this value or something and being very open at the beginning. Like, I don't know how we're going to get it done. Let's talk about it. Yeah. And that's a, probably a big part of the, that gap as well is people thinking, oh, there's a right answer. Because if I get a recipe and I change it a little bit, it feels like, okay, this is it. But on the other side of that gap isn't necessarily that way. The other side of the gap is I'm a problem solver and I'm involved. Now, it's really, really nice with RELS because there's a core RELS. There's a RELS way. There are many, many problems solved for me. But getting through that gap is accepting that I'm part of the solution and I'm going to go to work to get that figured out. I really love that. I think I'm going to actually extract those clips and put them out <laughs> as standalones because it's really true. I mean, you know, to a certain extent, there is some experiences involved there and, you know, recognizing certain patterns and being able to apply them. But yeah, a lot of it's just, you know what, I don't know what's going to come. I just know that I'm going to be able to solve it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people have wondered, why do we pay software developers so much? Well, that's why. They're, they're going to solve your problem. Um, maybe take a while and maybe we don't know how long it'll take. I mean, it's this eternal optimism that we're going to solve it. That's really different too. Like, of course we're going to solve it. <laughs> Which well, is also why it's so hard to estimate how long a project's going to take. Of course I'm going to solve it. I can't even see the problem yet. <laughs> but of course well, you're I'm also going to solve problems that are lucrative to be solved. Yeah. Hopefully. Otherwise you're going to go out of business. But yeah. Yep. Yeah. And that attitude is also why it's so risky, right? To to run off and try to craft what we think is a better way or our custom solution or, or not living within the constraints of the framework of the tools that are probably a better way of getting it done, right? Yeah, yeah, yep. So overall then, I'm, I'm curious, coming back to the, the big question then, how hard is Ruby on Rails to learn? Is it? <laughs> it's not hard, we make it hard. Fair enough. <laughs> if you're willing to be a problem solver and willing to figure things out as you go and realizing you're not going to get it all at once, it's not hard. We make it hard. <laughs> yep. As a Ruby developer, you've probably used Redis for queuing and caching. But if you're like me, you've never completely understood it. You just followed the tutorial to set it up and then hoped it'd stay up. Now that I'm building my own services for other people, I realize that you and I often don't have the desire or time to run an ops or DevOps team or do it yourself. Plus, since you're not a Redis expert, you're not exactly sure how to know what it's doing. That's why I love Redis Green. No setup. It runs on any AWS region I want so I can run it near me. And the tooling is amazing. I have to tell you about this feature, actually. It actually maps the memory you're using and tells you where all the memory is allocated. So this makes it really easy to see what's going on in your Redis setup. It also runs on AWS, so it scales easily and can alert you when it hits certain thresholds in performance or capacity. Sorry for going all fanboy on you, but I love this tool. Here's the thing. If you don't want to do ops or are already on Heroku or something, then use Redis Green for the rest. It's simple yet powerful. Check them out at redisgreen.net. All right, well, let's, let's go ahead and do some picks. Nate, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure. So, you know, as we've been talking about this, one of the, I've been doing Rails for over a decade now, uh, but one of the books that was incredibly helpful to me in the early days, and they've been updating it all along, it's a book from pragmatic programmers called Agile Web Development with Rails. They walk you through, you know, they used to, I'm sure they still do, they walk you through building a Rails app and present a problem and then explain the architecture of Rails and, and walk you through that as you build an application along with them through the book. And so in the early days when I first learned Rails, I found that incredibly useful. And so I'm going to pick it even though I haven't read the updated version of it. So just trusting that it's it's gotten better over the years and uh, has been updated and is very relevant to you know Rails 5 and all the new features that have that have landed. The other book that I've got, I've got another book for a pick. It's called uh, Company of One. Uh, and it's basically a business book about 
staying small, not necessarily a one-person company, but but staying small uh, and having some of that mentality of of staying small in terms of being very efficient from the business perspective. It's it's a fantastic book. It's by uh, Paul Jarvis. I'll link both of those if I can. My my trackpad just lost its batteries, so <laughs> I have no uh, no mouse control here. All right, David, what are your picks? So I've got two. They're also both books. I'm not as 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 uh, creative as Dave Kimura is. But, but they're books I've been really enjoying. One of them is um, John Osterhout's um, Philosophy of Software Design. John's been there, done it for a lot of, lot, a lot, a lot of years. And he's talking about how do you actually deal with complexity? How do you keep things simple? How do you build a system you're, you could be happy with a decade later? Really nice. He, he also points out in that book, nobody's been talking about that or written about that since basically the 1970s. And so getting clear that we've been doing this for a while and having a conversation about what good design really looks like, you know, not just design patterns, but what does the whole system look like? That's, it's a good book. The other one is it's called how to take smart notes. And it's incredibly liberating to see um, how it's uh, simple these notes can get and how much more I can get out of my brain. And so if you're, you're overwhelmed, you're struggling to get things done, you're learning a new technology, new language, how to take smart notes is a brilliant way to, to do that. And I could probably speak an hour about what I've learned from that book. It's pretty amazing. Nice. Dave, do you have some picks for us? Yeah. Yeah, I have two picks. One is a iOS application, and I am certain that it's probably available on Android and Windows and stuff, but it's Microsoft Whiteboard. So it is a whiteboard program that you can use on your iPad Pro or whatever. But what I love about it that I haven't seen other ones do is that you can use two fingers to drag to extend the whiteboard. So if you have a large thing that you're modeling out or whatever, or showing someone, then you don't have to create a new page or whatever. You can just move your finger, zoom in, zoom out. It's actually really nice. I was actually shocked. It was nice. The other thing is the Apple trackpad. So it's kind of funny that you mentioned that, Nate. I love the Apple trackpad. I recently got one from my buddy, Jeremy, who uh, gave it to me. And I'm in love with it. I actually only use it two times a week. And that's whenever I'm doing recordings on audio because my mouse has a really loud clicking sound, but the trackpad is silent. So it doesn't interfere with my audio recordings. Nice. I, I may have to go find mine now because <laughs> I had thought of that. <laughs> and so I get clicking noises in some of the shows. I've Passive got a couple. aggressive way to have you hold it down there, Charles. Would <laughs> <laughs> you tone it down a little bit? <laughs> yeah. Well, one time I was actually playing a video game while I was, I'll admit this, while I was recording a, a podcast. And uh, that one had lots of clicking noises in it. So I haven't done that in a few years, but yeah. Anyway, so I'm going to jump in here with a few picks of my own. So one, while I was looking for stuff related to this, I came across an article, and this article is from like 2012 or 2013, but I, I thought it was interesting and an interesting take on learning Ruby on Rails. And this is uh, how I learned enough Ruby on Rails in 12 weeks to build uh, or to launch Freelancify, and it's by James Fend. And it looks like Freelancify has turned into a software as a service product that actually makes him $7,000 a month, uh, monthly recurring revenue. And um, I, I just thought that was really cool that, you know, at, at least in 2012 or 2013, he was able to learn enough code to actually build a SaaS app that people were going to use. Anyway, I'm, I'm really curious. I, I kind of want to do a follow-up and just see if what he outlines as his experience will still hold. You know, can people learn enough Rails in 12 weeks to build a SaaS app today? And I think the answer is yes but I really kind of want to dive in and see what happens there. So anyway, I, I may actually work through what he did, even though I'm familiar with Rails, just to see yeah, what, what's out there and, and you know what people can do. The other pick that I have, and this is a book that I've been listening to, I pick books a lot because I probably read a book a week. If not, it's pretty close to that. The book I've been reading this week, and 
by read, I usually mean listen to on Audible, is Influence by Robert Cialdini. And he just talks about all of the different shortcuts that our brain takes to essentially decide to trust somebody or to make a decision. And it was really, really fascinating because, uh, yeah, he basically talks about, yeah, we he calls it the click whir, right? And so something clicks and then, you know, our brain just, you know, whirs into motion and does things automatically. And so, you know, he's like, this is why people that make these decisions under these circumstances and this is how con men get away with this kind of thing. Anyway, it was super interesting just to, you know, listen to him dive into this stuff and present some of the studies and and trials and things that they've they've done to figure a lot of this stuff out. So if you're into kind of a scientifically based book on how people make decisions and are influenced, this was a really, really interesting one to to go through. Yeah, I'll second that book. It's it's actually terrifying to me <laughs> just how how predictable and often gullible we humans are. Like we think we've got it together and that book will take you down a few notches really fast. Yeah, it's funny too because he also talks about ways to essentially disconnect the the shortcut that your brain takes. And it's funny because some of the things he talks about, I find, you know, it's like I can think of instances where it didn't work and essentially my brain took the path that he talked about to disconnect that shortcut. But, you know, in other circumstances for other things, those things totally work on me. And so it's really interesting just kind of oh my gosh, I've totally fallen for this. So, Yeah, he even talks about that a lot, falling victim to marketing tactics or sales yeah. tactics or you know high-pressure tactics. And, yeah. and he studies this for a living and still falls victim. Like he understands and recognizes the patterns and, and he cannot stop like his evolved response to, yeah. to the circumstance, to the click were scenario. It's just an automatic response. Yep. So yeah, I could sit and talk about it for hours because I find it fascinating, but. We don't have hours, so yeah. I just want to thank each of you for for coming and talking about this. I know that this is a question that you know people are still asking, and uh, hopefully, you know, we've kind of given people some guidance as far as how to learn it and whether or not they're approaching it properly. I guess, and how hard it is to learn Rails. So, anyway, we'll go ahead and wrap this up, and uh, we will catch you all next week. Talk to you later. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.